I want to talk about covenants and Christmas. This time of year, we're subject to, uh, to a lot of Merry Christmases. We're subject to a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, TV programs and a lot of platitudes and various other programs, et cetera, et cetera, some of which are, are great, some of which uh, you know, are, are less great. Um, this year we're, so we're subject to, I guess, even less Merry Christmases than we have been in the past, uh, even extending to the color of a cup that we may or may not drink from. But that doesn't, it doesn't uh, affect me whatsoever. Because, and it shouldn't affect any believer whatsoever. Because let, let the world do what the world always does. We will worship the king. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when we receive our Christmas cards, and when we see these, these phrases and, and stories told and retold, it's often difficult for us to be able to understand the fullness of the power of what these stories represent. Am I telling you, is that, am I to be understood? as saying that without this particular message that I'm going to preach today and part two next week, that we would be uh, uh, left a little with a little less understanding regarding our understanding of Christmas, uh, however many Christmases we've observed all our lives. Yeah, I actually am making that claim, okay? Because I view the New Testament, as you know my position is, that the New Testament is like um, the punchline of a joke. And there's nothing, as, there's nothing as awkward as coming into a room or you're at a party or whatever, you're mingling, you've got your red cup or whatever you're drinking from, uh, coffee or what have you, and you, you're, you're mingling and you come into this group and somebody's just set up the joke, um, but all you hear is the punchline. <laughs> Everybody laughs. And you, in, in uh, desperation not to appear out of it, or you didn't get it, or somehow not hip, you uh, smile, laugh along a little bit. <laughs> I have no idea what the punchline was actually setting up. Uh, but I'm sure it was funny, because I could see people laughing, right? Uh, it's like uh, when you hear somebody say, no soap, radio, right? What was the, what was the setup? Or how about this one? to get to the other side. Now, is there an extra charge for that? Because otherwise, okay. In the meantime, get out. Uh, but to get to the other side can only be understood in the context of the setup of the joke. Right? Why would somebody want to get to the other side? What creature is trying to get to the other side of what? Of a river? Of a, of a, of a nation? Of a, of a continent? Of a mountain? What is that individual or that, that, that creature? What does that person have a business on the other side? Right? So to understand the, and appreciate the joke, you have to hear the setup. 
okay, as to whether the chicken is looking, is he crossing, is he, why did the chicken cross the road? Is he checking traffic? Uh, Is he looking both ways? Is he crossing with the light, against the light? These are questions that inquiring minds want to know. But the point being is that you can't possibly understand the setup, the uh, punchline, until you hear the setup. The Gospels record the greatest punchline, the greatest solution to the greatest setup the world has ever seen. Okay? And yes, I am saying that to understand the Christmas story, to understand what in this instance we'll talk about today, Mary, we have to understand not just Christmas, but the covenants that fuel Christmas, the covenants that underlie the expectations, the setup to the Christmas punchline, if you will. So, we're going to talk today, familiar passage for us, several familiar passages over the next, uh, the next uh, two weeks. We'll be looking at passages all from Luke, which by the way, Luke chapter 1, I have no idea, whoever picked the versification for Luke chapter 1, really went off the rails there because Luke chapter 1, if you've ever read it, is extremely long. It's like 80 verses in this one chapter. I don't know why they didn't start chapter 2, but that's irregardless. Luke 1, 26, 38. And if you can't see the slide, stand up. Uh, you can't, uh, if you can't, then you just open your Bible, okay? If you don't have your Bible, I can't help you. Um, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So far, so good. We ask the who, what's, and the where's. We see that Gabriel is an angel sent from whom? From God to where? To Galilee in this village called Nazareth. Now why? We're about to find out. And he sent to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, you'll see that I have certain portions of the verse there in green. Um, I have highlighted those portions of the verse that is very easy, that are very easy with the familiarity that we have with these passages to overlook them. But we must not, we dare not overlook these because they're included for a reason. For example, verse 27, we see the angel is sent And the language is parthenos, a specific technical term in Greek for virgin. Now, she's an unmarried, it tells us that she is a virgin engaged to a man. And every young girl in Israel who was not married could be presumed to be a virgin. If a young girl who was not married was not a virgin, she would be dead. Because she would be stoned. That's the penalty. It's a capital infringement. right? So she's either married or she's a virgin. So why didn't he simply say to a woman or to a girl? Why does he use the technical term parthenos, virgin, not once but twice? A virgin engaged to a... He's going out of his way to make it very clear that she's not married, engaged, yes, but not married... And yet pointing out, highlighting, as I have done, her virginity, that she is a virgin. Why would she do, why would Luke do this? Furthermore, 
Look at the specificity that he provides regarding who the woman is engaged to. Joseph of the descendants of David. Now, that's just, for some people, that's just background color. Okay? And extraneous to the actual story. Get to the point. Let me hear the angel announcing about Jesus going to be born. Let me hear about this virgin birth about to happen, right? Why, don't, don't, don't bother me with the details. The action's all in the details, people. Without the details, you have no idea of what Luke is actually communicating, right? A pre, presupposition of Luke and every other gospel author was that there was a certain amount of biblical literacy inherent in the congregations who would be reading these Gospels or having these Gospels read to them. A fluency, a familiarity with major Old Testament concepts, one of which has to do with a virgin, as opposed to just any old girl, which would have been accurate to say. But specifically, Joseph is of the descendants of David. He's not giving that for color. He's giving it so that it will clue you in and prepare you for what's coming. We don't even have to hear the announcement to understand what's rumbling in the distance. An angel is visiting a virgin engaged to a descendant of King David. What could possibly be unfolding I wonder. It takes a certain familiarity with the scriptures, first of all. Not just the covenants of God, but messianic prophecies. It is my contention that Luke uses the term, the specific term, virgin, because he wants his audience, who are primarily Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles, believers, he believes that they are familiar enough with the Hebrew prophets to understand a reference when it's being made. There is a famous virgin, a famous Parthenos in the Septuagint, who is referenced in Isaiah 7 in regard to a future king who will be unique. Look at this passage. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin... And whether we want to argue about the correct term in Hebrew, whether it should have been Alma or, or Betula or whatever the, the, uh, the Jews for Judaism try to argue, they don't have no idea what they're talking about because certainly by the second century BC, the Greek translation of this, Jewish people, not Christians, Jewish translators, translate their understanding of Isaiah 7 with Parthenos, which is the technical term for virgin. The, the Greeks have an actual technical term for virginity, for virgin. That's not a term that the Jewish people actually have. There's no term in the Jewish... It's not a concept that Jewish people dealt with in the first century. If you were not married, you were a virgin. You didn't have to go specifying whether someone was or was not by their sexual experience. Okay? If you were not married, you were not sexually experienced. But, point is, the term says virgin. But what about the virgin? The virgin will be with child and bear a son. So a virgin is going to have a son. That's a pretty good sign that the Lord is going to give. 
and she will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is a spectacular prophecy and a spectacular sign that it's mysterious, absolutely. It's not all spelled out here. It's just a tantalizing tidbit that Isaiah dangles for us that awaits the unfolding of not only Isaiah's future prophecies, but the New Testament itself to reveal the full impact and the full import of what this verse says. But nonetheless... One thing that every believer in the first century should have understood is that there would be a coming virgin who would have a child who in some way, shape, or form identity would be characterized, it would be accurate to characterize the child as Emmanuel, God with us. That's the simple presupposition that Luke begins with in verse 26 and verse 27. Okay, virgin, descendants of David. Continuing, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord, it's the covenant name of God. Jehovah is with you. But she was very perplexed at that statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. I don't know if she was expecting the angel to come in. Hey! Sup, right? And that would have been something she wouldn't have pondered, right? But what is she pondering? Not that the angel came, but how the angel couches his language. Greetings, favored one. In what way is she favored? The Lord is with you. In what way is the Lord, is the covenant God of Israel with you in a way that he's not with the rest of the nation of Israel, with the rest of the village of Nazareth, with the rest of the region of Galilee, and the entirety of Judea. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering. Mary's a ponderer. She's a thinker. Mary is not some ignorant Galilean peasant girl, as has so often been portrayed in popular messages and portrayals. There are, there are no illiterate Jewish children in ancient Israel. There are no biblically unaware or illiterate children in ancient Israel. I'll say it again. Even women, even girls. There was a certain level of knowledge, of literacy, that the Jewish children have, and she's not more than 13 or 14 here. She's a child, right? she's a young girl. But nonetheless, I would dare say that if there was a competition between Mary or any other child in the village of Nazareth in the first century, uh, and you put them against any of the adults in this, con- in this congregation or any other congregation nearby, that there would be quite, a, that'd be quite a contest to see who knows more Bible. Right? So don't assume ignorance. She ponders. She considers. She turns these things over in her mind, in her heart. She looks at them from different sides. She connects 
the dots. What dots does she have to connect? Well, let's stay tuned. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Once again, you have found favor with God. Two times. He's emphasizing in a very short period of time. Angel doesn't say a whole lot here. He doesn't have a lot of lines, right? But it's okay, you know, there's no small, there's no small parts, only small angels. No, there's no, no small angels, only small bits of dialogue. Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. She is apparently super favored with God. And behold, let me tell you why you're favored. What's going to happen now? Because you're favored, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him, the English translation says Jesus. Obviously, the angel and Mary were not conversing in Greek or in English. They were speaking Hebrew. So you will call his name Yeshua, which means salvation. So you, a virgin, will have a child, and he will be characteristically referred to as salvation. That's the name. He will be great and will be called, now, not by you, you'll call him salvation, but he will be called by others, generally speaking, the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is very familiar language for us. Anybody who's ever received a Christmas card has read this passage. We're familiar with it. But it's so interesting how people can hear this covenantal language and yet completely overlook it and hear something else. He is the son of the most high because he'll be given the throne of his father David and he'll reign over the church. Is that what it says? Does it say he'll reign over the church? Does it say he'll reign over the world? It says he will reign over the house of Jacob. Who is the house of Jacob? Israel. This is a Jewish king that the angel is telling her is coming. There is a Jewish king who is coming. He is going to rule on the throne of his father David. Now David's throne had been unoccupied at this point for six centuries. Roughly. They were currently under Roman occupation. And even some 63 years earlier before the occupation, they had for 100 years a free and independent kingdom. It was a Jewish kingdom. It was the Maccabean kingdom. That's what we celebrate Hanukkah about. Right? But that even the Maccabees didn't rule on the Davidic throne. Why didn't the Maccabees rule on the Davidic throne? Because they were not descendants of David. They were priests. They were children, descendants of Mattathias, Maccabee, 
who initiated the revolution. He's a priest. And the Maccabean rulers for 100 years were priest kings, not Judean Davidic kings. So the Davidic throne had been unoccupied the last time somebody occupied. Babylon came and overthrew, and that was the end of that. And they waited in the occupation and the time in between for a Davidic descendant to rise up, breaking off the shackles of Gentile oppression, to rule over Israel from the legitimate throne of David as a true son of David. But what's furthermore, this is not hyperbole, he will reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel. How long? Forever? Some kings ruled a good long time. David ruled a really long time, 40 years. Saul before him, 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. 40 years is a good run. It's a generation. But that's not forever. This king is going to be different. This son of David will rule forever. And his kingdom will have no end. At this point, the reader and Mary are beginning to put together a couple of pieces of data from the Old Testament from the Hebrew Scriptures. One of which, of course, is that Isaiah 7 passage, the virgin will conceive, bear a son who will be called God with us. Emmanuel, some supernaturally charged individual. And now we have an immortal individual who will reign over Israel forever. And his kingdom will have no completion point, will have no termination point, will have no end. What are we to understand, those of us who ponder these things? Mary said to the angel, how can this be? First of all, she wants to know the mechanics before we get into the theology. I'm a virgin. You know I'm a virgin. We all know basic biology. The angel answered and said to her, she's asking a biological technical question. He answers her with not a biological answer, a theological answer. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, for what reason? For the reason of a supernatural conception that is absent the DNA of a male. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, how are we to coalesce the ideas of Son of God and uh, King uh, who will have no end to his throne and uh, descendant of David? How are we to put these together? The Davidic covenant is the key. What is the Davidic covenant? The Vedic Covenant is a set of passages which find the establishment 
of a contract that God made with David regarding his descendants, regarding his future. It's an unconditional set of promises that God made to David of one, a perpetual dynasty. In other words, the only legitimate kings that will ever rule over the house of Jacob will be Davidic kings, a perpetual dynasty. Secondly, an unshakable kingdom that no matter what happens, this kingdom will not fall. This kingdom, ruled over by your descendant, will not be overrun. That certainly was not true in David's day. Certainly David's immediate descendant, Solomon, his kingdom split. So we can't be talking about Solomon. And future descendants of David? Well, as we've pointed out, the Babylonians destroyed the Davidic kingdom. 586 B.C. So we must be talking about something future. Far future from David. Perpetual dynasty and an unshakable kingdom. But the third promise, the third major component of the Davidic covenant is an eternal throne. How could one king guarantee perpetual dynasty, unshakable kingdom, eternal throne? We know it has to be a son of David. We know he has to be strong enough to be able to maintain against all comers the power of his kingdom. But the only way to maintain an eternal throne is to have a descendant who is in some way immortal, who does not have to consider whether death will stop him from his ability or halt his rule in any way. So perpetual dynasty, unshakable kingdom, eternal throne. And this is an indissoluble covenant that come what may cannot be broken in which David promised that one of his descendants would rule over Israel and here's the key forever. Let's take a look. There's, by the way, there's a parallel passage. We're in 1 Chronicles 17, which uh, is almost exactly the same language. We'll find it in a different place. If you can't find Chronicles, you know, maybe you have better luck in Samuel because it's in 2 Samuel. And it's easy, always easy to remember because 1 Chronicles 17 is paralleled by 2 Chronicles 7. So lucky seven, number of perfection is always in the Davidic covenant here. So, but we're going to read 1 Chronicles 17 and just a portion of it, 11 through 14. When your days are fulfilled, that you must be with your fathers, in other words, when you croak, when you die, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons. Yes, yeah, Solomon, of course, right? He's next in line for me. And I will establish his kingdom. So maybe it's Solomon, maybe it's not. Let's see. Of course, we know it's not Solomon. But one of your sons, son of David. See the terminology that we've already seen in Luke, son of David. He will build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Does that sound familiar here? Right? His kingdom will have no end over the throne of his father David. That's covenantal language comes directly from 
the Davidic covenant. I will establish his throne forever. That was not Solomon. That was not any Rehoboam. No way. Right? It was none of the descendants. I will be his father and he shall be my son. He shall be my son. Really? They'll be called the son of God. He will be my son. This is covenantal language. Verse 14, I'm skipping just a little bit there. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. See the concepts that are laid out. The setup is laid out in the Hebrew scriptures. The payoff, the punchline, if you will, is found in the first chapters of the Gospels. Okay? In this story that Luke relates to us, relays, rather, to us. And without an understanding and appreciation of the Davidic covenant or of Isaiah's prophecies, it's very difficult to appreciate the significance. And so when you receive that Christmas card that says he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end, most of us, just because we haven't considered the setup, read, oh, he'll be king of the world, and he's the Messiah of everybody, and he's ruling over the church. But the church is not Jacob. We're not replacement theologians. We're not supersessionists. We believe the Bible says what it means and means what it says. Well, aside from the Davidic covenant, what else should we be referencing in regard to the... It's called the Annunciation, by the way, this announcement that the angel makes to Mary. Oh, Isaiah 9. Just a mere two chapters. A stone's throw. Turn the page from 7, and you'll see chapter 9. And this is a famous... Again, Christmas card ready... But without context, you really don't understand the punchline. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Is that, what reference is that coming from? Is that coming from, from out of outer space? It's coming from chapter 7. This son who will be called Emmanuel, who comes from a virgin. It's the same son. And he's political. He's a king. How do I know he's a king? It tells me. The government will rest on his shoulders. That's a king. But if you don't believe me, let's see the titles he's given. Is it titles of a warrior king? And much more. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. That's not awesome therapist okay that's the language of a wartime strategist wonderful counselor think consigliere okay this is a guy who knows how to make war and these are four names that are given Pele Yoetz wonderful counselor i.e. awesome strategist Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These titles are arranged 
what theologians, fancy little Bible commentator guys, like to call this a little chiasm, where uh, it's like in an X, and the first and the last are connected, and then the middle two are connected, and it makes a cross uh, or an X, which in Greek is a he, and so we call it a chiasm. A he? No, it's a she. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, just think of it as connected. Top and bottom, okay, like bread, and then in the middle you've got a sandwich, and the, the meat and the cheese are together. But, of course, not in the Messianic context. There's never meat and cheese together. Uh, but, but, but for the rest of you, okay, you, you got a sandwich. So wonderful counselor is connected to Prince of Peace. Now, Prince of Peace should sound familiar to you because in Hebrew it's Sar Shalom. This, after all, is the house of the Prince of Peace. Right? So how could a wartime strategist, an awesome strategist, military strategist, be called the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom. How is the Peleuetz the Sar Shalom? It doesn't seem to make sense. Peace and war? Sure it does, if you think about it. How is peace brought about generally? Not how our... I don't want to talk politics. Uh, how is, how is peace generally achieved in world history? Through overwhelming force, outstanding prowess in the art of war, establishing peace through strength and strategy. That is how the awesome military strategist, the wonderful counselor, can wind up as the prince of peace. He establishes peace because of his acumen and his abilities and his strength as a leader over his people, countering any and all enemies and creating peace. That's why his kingdom will have no end. So we see how those two relate to one another, the two outer names. But what about the inner names? Mighty God... Eternal Father, El Gibor Aviad. These are names that, if we're honest with our text, they are very unusual to be attributed to any human individual. In fact, you don't see them attributed to human individuals. El Gibor, to call a man El Gibor? Maybe it's hyperbole. But you can get away with hyperbole once. But then to call him Aviad, father of eternity. I don't like eternal father, actually, because uh, people get confused. I say, well, how, how could the, it's a trinity. And he's, he's the son, he's not the father. Uh, Different contexts, okay? Father of eternity. He is most assuredly a king, but much, much more. Remember, the Davidic covenant promises a perpetual dynasty, an unshakable kingdom. You can get those from wonderful counselor and prince of peace. But the eternal throne can only come from the individual being, father of eternity and mighty God.
And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of shalom, peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You recognize this from Luke? From the angelic announcement? To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Mary could not possibly understand what the angel had to say to her without a knowledge of the prophecies and the covenants. Do the covenants belong with Christmas? Absolutely. Without the covenants, Christmas is just a time for giving gifts and singing songs. It's the covenants that fuel the fact that the world has been invaded by the God-man, the son of David, who although he's not ruling now on the throne of David, will most certainly do so in the future. It's just that his ministry, his work, required a major detour along the way on the road to establishing world peace and his unending dominion. But what is Mary's response? How does Mary respond in just a few verses later in 146? This section, and we're not going to, we're not going to get into the section right now. I'm just going to tease it for next week. It's called the Magnificat. Why is it called the Magnificat? Because it's such a magnificent poem. It's, you know what the Magnificat is? It's called Magnificat because the first word in Latin is Magnificat, right? right? Um, uh, magnified. My soul magnifies the Lord. And it's the Magnificat which we will get into. There's two songs, two passages we're going to get into next week from Luke. Mary's song, the Magnificat, followed immediately thereafter, just uh, 10 or 15 verses later, uh, by Zacharias' song, which is very familiar to it as well. But when's the last time most of you heard a, a message on the Magnificat? Okay? For most of us, it's been a very long time, if at all. And yet it's a very significant portion of Scripture because it's one of the very few portions of Scripture that is written by a woman. Luke didn't write the Magnificat. He just trans transcribed it. Mary composed the Magnificat. A lot of people, they say of the Magnificat, couldn't possibly be Mary's because it's too sophisticated for an uneducated uh, Galilean peasant girl growing up in a village. To which I say, perhaps your presupposition needs to be adjusted. So either you want to posit that Mary didn't write it, or if she did write it, it required a level of sophistication that most of us never considered Mary to have. A level of biblical literacy and knowledge and a relationship with the Lord and with his covenants that most of us don't ourselves possess. And she begins with these wonderful lines, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. 
Interesting, considering that Yeshua means Savior or salvation. That's just a tease. Why are those verses, why are the ones in green in green? Why did I highlight them? What did Mary mean? What is she referencing? Is she referencing a prophecy? Is she referencing a covenant? Or is she referencing something more? An earlier song, an earlier prayer by a much earlier woman of faith who Mary tips her hat to, so to speak. Well, I'm afraid for the time being, I'm going to have to leave you in suspense. I've given you all you need for right now to be able to celebrate Christmas, to be able to enjoy the day understanding that this is the celebration of the birth of a Jewish king, of the Jewish king, the Jewish king whose kingdom will never come to an end. Next week, we will see just how far And if David's covenant is the only covenant that Mary was familiar with, and if Isaiah's prophecy was the only prophecy about the Messiah that Mary was familiar with, what will I leave you with? Pondering this very issue as we share in communion together.